Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 80. The Tragedy of the Last Severan. He would wear a tunic made wholly of cloth of gold. He even wore jewels on his shoes, sometimes engraved ones. He wished to wear also a jewelled diadem in order that the beauty might be increased and his face looked more like a woman's, and in his own house he did wear one. This is what the Historia Augusta, never the most reliable of sources, says of the complete weirdo we know as the Emperor Elagabalus. With hindsight, it's easy to ridicule Elagabalus, those in the army who put him in power, and those in the Senate who ratified it. As with all these things, though, it's easy to see how it happened. Varius Avitus Bassianus was born in Syria, probably in late 203. He was the grandson of Julia Maser, sister of Septimius Severus's wife Julia Domna. He was, at the time of his grandmother's plotting, the high priest of the cult of the sun god El Gabul, which is where history gets his name. The great temple for the cult was in the family's home city of Emesa. By all reports, he cut a fine figure in the garb of the priesthood. His father was a Roman citizen, and he was related by marriage to the Severans. When Julian Maser attempted to pass him off as the son of Caracalla, the audience was willing to believe. When the legions which supported him beat Macrinus in battle and he was declared emperor, he was just 14 years old. Now we all know what happens when very young men become emperors, and Elagabalus continued this trend of very bad young emperors very well. His short reign was, well, just weird. The new emperor didn't rush to Rome to cement his rule, but, because he was a Severan, there was no revolt. His claim to the throne was much stronger than that of Macrinus. Julia Maser did, though, send a portrait of the new emperor to the Senate, with instructions to hang it in the Senate house. The senators would then have some idea what Elagabalus looked like. The Senate were not pleased when they saw the portrait. Nope, not pleased at all. The 14-year-old boy looked just like the description of him from the beginning of this chapter. He was wearing many jewels and makeup. The fact is that this was part of the regalia he wore as high priest. Apparently, before assuming the purple, he had taken his religious duties very seriously, and continued to do so for some time after. Very soon after his accession, the third legion, the legion which had supported Elagabalus in the first place, revolted and was completely disbanded. Clearly, this wasn't a good sign. Actually, though, real power was held by Julia Mazer. She insisted that she be allowed to attend senatorial meetings, something no woman had ever done. The Senate was very displeased by this, but allowed it, and Julia Mesa was soon the most powerful woman that Rome had ever known. She tried to rule well in the Emperor's name. This was somewhat hard, given his erratic behaviour. Nope, Elagabalus was having none of it. He was absolutely obsessed with El Gabul, or Sol Invictus, the unconquered son. He had all of the temples in Rome delicate, dedicated to El Gabul. The ancient Roman gods, even Jupiter himself, were said by the emperor to be not as important as this newly introduced deity. This made the senate and people quite frightened. They had always made sure they worshipped the gods and thought this brought good fortune on Rome. Now the weirdo from Syria was taking their gods away and replacing them with this eastern sun god. Every day, Elagabalus performed an hour-long ceremony of worship to El Gabul. He made the senators take part in this ceremony. Here we go again. Caligula made the senators watch his executions. Nero made them listen to his terrible music. Commodus made them watch his unfair fights in the Circus Maximus. And now this strange Syrian boy was making them take part in ceremonies which went against their beliefs.
We know what happened to Caligula, we know what happened to Nero, and we know what happened to Commodus. And yes, it's about to happen to Elagabalus too. The whole of the Empire had had enough of this boy dressing up as a woman and making them worship a god they did not believe in. Something had to be done. Now, Elagabalus had a cousin, a boy named Gessius Bassianus Alexianus. Julia Mesa persuaded Elagabalus to make this young boy, known as Alexander, his successor. In 221, Alexander was formally adopted by the Augustus and named Caesar. As soon as this was done, the legions started to get restless and many assassination attempts were made on the 17-year-old emperor. Elagabalus realised what was going on and seeing how much the Praetorians seemed to love Alexander, he wrote the young man out of his will. He then pretended to everyone that Alexander was dead. The Praetorian guard were furious and demanded that Alexander be brought out alive immediately. Elagabalus and his mother produced Alexander and the Praetorians cheered and proclaimed him Caesar. The guards then turned on the emperor with hate and rage in their eyes and charged at him. He was cut down by their swords and died immediately. His mother was also killed and their bodies were thrown out into the street. Poor Elagabalus was still only 18 years old and had been emperor of Rome for just under four years. Not really a lot happened during the reign of Elagabalus, except the army and the Praetorian Guard became even more powerful. This trend had started under Septimius Severus, but as he was a strong and respected emperor, it had not been a problem during his reign. During the reigns of Caracalla and Gedda, Macrinus and Elagabalus, the soldiers increasingly did what they wanted to do, and Rome stood on the brink of chaos and crisis. The time which we know as the crisis of the 3rd century was about to begin, Surely nothing could prevent the empire from collapsing in on itself. But then, rather strangely, something did prevent it. For 13 years, things nearly went back to normal. The provinces flourished, the laws were upheld, and life became just a little easier. In the end, though, the power of the army was too much. They'd been used to the good times for too long, and they launched the empire into a period of deep crisis, which lasted 50 years. Because of the period of chaos, it's likely that the reign of Alexander is seen with rose-tinted spectacles, and it wasn't as great as all that. It's clear, though, that his heart was in the right place, and he did his best to rule well. Bassianus Alexianus acceded to the throne aged just 13 in 222 AD. Every other man who had come to the throne under the age of 25 had been a total and complete disaster. This young man, though, was different. On accession, he and his mother and grandmother put in place a council of 16 wise senators who were consulted about every big decision the emperor had to make. These senators were listened to and their advice taken. This new boy emperor took the name Marcus Aurelius Severus Alexander Pius Felix Augustus and we know him as Alexander Severus. His mother Julia Mamia and his grandmother Julia Mesa helped the teenager to rule well giving him the chance to grow up before having to make decisions for himself. The 16 senators and two remaining Severan Julias advised the young man until he was able to make his own mark on the empire. As a youth, he was never allowed just to sit around and do nothing. Every day he'd go down to the forum and sit in judgment at the daily trials. He listened carefully to his advisers and very soon became a good, fair judge. Two notable men influenced the early rule of Alexander Severus. Ulpian, the acclaimed jurist, and Cassius Dio, the famous historian, both played key roles in the administration. Ulpian had been banished by Elagabalus, but Alexander brought him back and made him Praetorian prefect. 
his legal work was the best there had been for many years, and much of it would form the basis of the legal revolution put in place by Justinian over 300 years later. The temples which had been turned over to Sol Invictus by Elagabalus were immediately returned to the worship of the traditional Roman gods. All of the corrupt and horrible men appointed by the former emperor were fired and replaced by men who could and did govern well. The provinces returned to peace and the empire breathed more easily. Ulpian, though, was not loved by his Praetorian soldiers. No, he was stopping them from earning money in the same quantity as they'd been used to. The new emperor and his prefect had cut the spending throughout the Roman world so the empire could save some money. Caracalla and Elagabalus, like Nero and Commodus before them, had spent all the money and there was none left. One of the spending cuts which the emperor and his adviser introduced was to reduce the pay of the soldiers. And they were not happy. They rose up in revolt, and in 223, although some say 228, Ulpian was murdered, despite Alexander's best efforts to save him. This proved once more to the troops that they were more important than the 16 senators and the emperor himself, knowledge that led directly to the crisis of the 3rd century. In 229, Cassius Dio would also be sent into exile, despite Alexander relying on him and trusting him. Poor Alexander Severus had lost his most important advisers. Despite this, he refused to condemn and put to death very many people, and calm returned to the city and then to the rest of the empire. The legions and the Praetorians, though, saw this as weakness. Alexander, very cleverly, promoted most of the ringleaders of the conspiracies to positions in the provinces where they couldn't do too much more damage. Then later, and very quietly, he had them executed. In 224, Julian Mazer died. Now there was only one Severan Julia left. Julia Mamia did her level best to carry on helping her son rule wisely, but was seen as overbearing, money-grabbing and far too influential. Once Alexander reached adulthood, it became even more of a problem. The soldiers openly questioned his manliness. Though Alexander was ruling the empire well, the traditional enemies of Rome started to flex their muscles. The previous Parthian king had not been able to hold his kingdom together, The struggles within the empire resulted in a new dynasty being founded in the former Persian territories. A new king rose to the Parthian throne and tried to assert his rule. He couldn't hold his people together though, and the Parthians were defeated and the empire disappeared from history. In its place, the Sassanids under Artashir rose and became extremely powerful. The Sassanid empire would last another 400 years and would often be one of Rome's most dangerous enemies. Artashir was crowned King of Kings and spent the next few years wandering around the former Parthian territory, making sure everyone knew who was in charge now. By 2.30, he'd succeeded in getting all of the people on his side and he turned his attention west, to the Empire of Rome. This, he thought, would be a good time to do some conquering. Meanwhile, in 2.25, Alexander married and became very fond of his new wife. Unfortunately, his mother was not so keen. She wanted to be able to control her son and who he met with and wasn't happy that another woman was taking her place. She invented some story about his wife's father and had him executed and Alexander's wife was exiled. Alexander was a mild-tempered, sensible young man. He didn't have people executed for no reason. He didn't start wars because he felt like it. He didn't force senators to watch or take part in strange rituals or musical performances. He didn't tax people so they found it hard to survive. The one problem with his mild temperament, though, was that he couldn't stand up to his mother. 
This led directly to his wife being exiled and would be an important part of the reason why he was eventually assassinated. The first eight years of the reign of the man known as the Last Princeps would be the last peaceful and content years the empire would know for a long time. The provinces and Rome itself were happy and prosperous and pretty much everyone was doing okay. The crisis of the 3rd century could not have been further from the minds of the Romans at this time, but soon they would be deep in it and 50 more years would be needed to sort it out. In 230, word finally came that the Sassanids were getting restless on the eastern border. Artashir had decided to attack the Roman Empire. He amassed a huge army and raided territory in Mesopotamia. This wasn't officially Roman land, so not yet a declaration of war, but it showed everyone that Artashir meant business. Alexander now did the right thing, which quite a lot of people would see as the wrong thing. He sent a message to Artashir stating the Romans wanted peace. He then sent some of his men to meet with the king. Artashir, they said, you're moving into our territory and this can't be allowed, but we know that you're a new king and probably don't know you've broken our agreements. Go back to your own lands, now, and our emperor will not attack you. Artashir sent back a note saying, Thanks for the message, but I know exactly what I'm doing. I want all Roman territory east of the Hellespont and I'm going to take it, so come and stop me if you think you're tough enough. It was time, at last, for war. Alexander marched east quickly, and his generals came up with a good strategy for victory. The Imperial Party arrived at Antioch in 231 with some of the Danube legions. Alexander offered peace, but again Artashir refused. The legions were now getting a bit unhappy with the offers of peace. They wanted to fight. Alexander and his advisers came up with a plan to defeat the Sassanids. One third of the army would march through Armenia and attack from the north. One third would cross the Tigris and attack from the south. The third part of the army, led by Alexander, would attack through the middle and destroy the Sassanids. This plan went well at first. The north and south armies attacked and won, but Alexander made his one great mistake. He never led his middle army into battle. No one knows why he didn't, but it meant the southern army was destroyed on the banks of the Euphrates, and the northern one had to march, march back through Armenia to Antioch, and a lot of men died. The soldiers thought Alexander was a coward. The Sassanids, though, had looked on the might of Rome and decided they'd had enough, so Artashir stopped for a while and decided to try again a few years later. Alexander was delighted, but the legions, unfortunately, wouldn't forget what had happened. The eastern threat was gone for now, but in the west the German tribes were getting restless. Some of the tribes of Germania had started to raid Roman territory and kill citizens. This was the last straw for the Danube regions. They had been away from home while their families had been killed by the Germans, primarily because they were not there to defend them. Yep, the Danube legions were very unhappy. Alexander marched his armies back towards the Danube and on the way dropped some of his legionaries back in Moesia at their homes. Again, this was the right thing to do. The remaining men arrived in Germania in about 235. On arrival, Alexander offered the German tribes peace, including a payment to keep the empire safe. At last, at this final insult to Rome as they saw it, the soldiers had had enough. They were fed up with paying for peace and they wanted an emperor who would fight for Rome's honour. They were ready to rebel. The only thing they lacked was a leader who could be a focus for their rebellion. And they found one. In the early 230s, Alexander had appointed a giant Thracian to the important command of one of the Danube legions. 
This man had shown his skills nearly forty years earlier when he wrestled with the soldiers of Septimius Severus's army. Since then, he'd had a great career in the army and had trained most of the troops on the Danube Legion. They loved him, and he loved them. In 235 AD, the legions declared this commander, a, ma- a man named Maximine Thrax, emperor, and he sent some agents to kill the last of the Severans. Alexander, Julia Mamia, and their advisers were slaughtered in their tents, and thus a new era was entered. Rome had its first barbarian emperor. Poor Alexander Severus died, aged just 26, in 235. He was the youngest emperor up to that point in Roman history and had ruled the empire for more than a decade. With him died the Severan dynasty and the principate of Augustus, of Trajan, of Hadrian and of Marcus Aurelius. Now the army were in charge and the senate was ignored. The next 50 years would be the worst the empire would know until the fall began in the 400s. Around 25 men would be legitimate emperors in this time and the empire would nearly crumble. It was a miracle that it didn't. Alexander Severus had ruled the empire for 13 years, most of them reasonably successful. He had done his very best. In better times he might have been a very good emperor, particularly if he had been able to jettison his mother, but times were not right. He had time and time again done the right thing, but the right thing is not always the popular thing. Alexander Severus had done his family proud, and his death would bring in the demons of chaos that would rock the very foundations of the Empire of Rome. In the next episode, we'll follow another one of our little detours and take a look at some of the writers and historians who made Rome great. Until then, have a great couple of weeks, and I'll speak to you next time.